You don't have any heroes in this particular problem. We all have to be heroes working together. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper? This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, class, stop typing, please. All right, class, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Juliet Davenport. She's a businesswoman, former CEO and founder of Good Energy, the first 100% renewable energy electricity company and host of Great Green Questions. And she joins me now. Hi, Juliet. Hi, Susan. Well, the first question I've got to ask you, of course, is what do you think are the main great green questions? <laughs> there are so many, um, which is what we discovered on the podcast. I mean, I think, I think the point is our lives are very complex. We've grown up in a world where carbon has really defined the fundamentals of our society and our economy. And we've built, we've built cars, we've built houses, we've got a food system that has slightly taken carbon for granted. So actually, the thing about Great Crew Questions is there's some fantastic questions to ask about every single part of our lives. 20 years ago, there was much scoffing and uh, you know, guffawing about climate change, and, and people clearly didn't take it very seriously. Do you think it's changed? And if so, why? So I think it's changed hugely. I mean, so I, I got interested in climate change um, sort of probably the late 80s, early 90s. And, and that was really my epiphany moment. I, I grew up in a world, I think, Susan, I've told you, I grew up in a sort of very high carbon world on the side of a racetrack. So um, there was a complete sort of from wanting to be a Formula One racing driver, which was my childhood dream, not that I would have achieved it. But um, I flipped to being a sort of climate campaigner from, from the age sort of, from the age of about 1920. Um, and definitely it was on the outskirts and um, nobody really talked about it. People kind of thought it was a scientific thing, but it wasn't ever going to actually influence anything wider than just being a scientific talking point. Um, and it gained traction. But I think one of the main things about it is that a lot of people don't have the... Um, the tools to be able to discuss climate change. Most of us stop doing science when we're about 16. Um, it's a complex problem. And so it was easier to dismiss it as not being real. I remember having an argument with a, with a lawyer actually in the European Commission about the fact that she turned around to me and said, well, well, climate change isn't 100% proven. And I said, well, nothing is 100% proven. If you're a scientist, you never deal with, with complete certainty. Uh, that's the principle of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. There is no certainty in science. In reality, it's just the perception of certainty by everybody outside science. Well, you actually read physics at Oxford. So, um, I mean, you, you are really an out-and-out -out scientist. I want to just return, because I love, the, I love the, uh, the image of you being on the racetrack. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and uh, you know, what was it like watching these cars whizzing around and, and how involved were you with the motor racing world? Yeah, so, um, so, so my father was a, a rallying co-driver when I, when I was sort of born and he, 
He used to be, it was, I mean, it was a terribly glamorous time for the motor car, wasn't it? It was the sort of Lancia Fulvias, the Mini Coopers, uh, the Saabs. They were beautiful cars and, and it was, it was like a frontier really. I mean, they would, they were sort of, they were ex- as much innovation experiments, some of those cars, uh, as they were sort of about getting speed and about marketing. Um, and sort of as I grew up, dad there, my father then got involved in managing race teams. So that meant we went to race circuits. Um, and there were, there were two things that I sort of really observed. One, one was, it was, it was a place where people tested and tried things out. They, they never knew whether things were going to work or break. Uh, everybody pushed things to the edge. It was a, it was a very, obviously a very male world. And you saw this constant need to, to, to win and change things and push things, which was interesting because obviously when you need to make a massive change in the world, that kind of sort of really pushing forwards in innovation and technology was, was quite interesting. The other side of it, obviously very male dominated. There were no female racing drivers. Uh, most of the women at the race circuits normally either held an umbrella or a racing driver's arm. Uh, and, and so, um, I mean, I was a sort of odd one out. I was a daughter and I was quite young. Uh, I used to watch the teams, uh, watch the mechanics, watch who were, it was fascinating to see who was good, who was not good, who had attitude, who didn't. Um, I think it was at that point though, that I decided that I didn't, that I was going to, if I was ever going to be in that world, that I was going to do it on my own merits, not on somebody else's. How have you been treated historically in your profession by men as a result of having this confidence? Well, I think, I mean, I think uh, I always remember turning up to conferences or turning up to particularly roundtable meetings when you're meeting with a bunch of CEOs from the energy sector and uh, speaking up and then and getting a distinct look of surprise around the room that any anybody was, that a female was speaking and in fact a female was in the room. Um, I think that was, that was definitely, but they were always pretty courteous, to be honest. Some of them were friendlier than others. Some of them accepted the challenge because normally what I brought with whatever I said was fairly challenging. Um, so it was, it was the, the external sort of piece felt pretty okay. I think probably I struggled more with, I I didn't necessarily Obviously, I had a board and I've always had pretty good people on the board. But um, a lot of the time I found it more difficult when I was dealing with younger blokes coming through who found it difficult to have a female boss. Not all of them. Most of them were brilliant. But the occasion one where you just they just think they're better than you. They don't agree with you. It's just a bit dull, to be honest. It's like, <laughs> What's your view on the hashtag Me Too movement? I think... So I, I think it's, it's about empowering women to say something. Um, I think it's, I think it's had an amazing impact on women speaking out because I think a lot of women, again, using the word appropriate, have wanted to put it in the drawer and not necessarily admit that anything happened to them. And I think that, that then undermines the next generation of women where, where things might happen to them as well. And I think it's been incredibly important to call it out, to make sure that you can see a bunch of women who genuinely aren't victims, uh, who have been submitted to behavior that's completely wrong. So that I think is empowering and making sure that 
Um, what we now need to do is make sure it doesn't get in our way. Um, with, with any movement like this that ha- precipit- helps precipitate change, you've got to be careful you don't get stuck with it and that you can move on beyond Me Too and what's next. Do you think climate change would have been taken more seriously earlier if it had been primarily men who'd been uh, proposing change? Because it seems to me like that. I know this little Greta Thunberg, you know, and uh, you know she's done a, a, a lot. But it seems to me that it's mainly women that have been saying, "Look, guys, things are getting a bit serious." So I think. I think what's happened over the years, so so there's definitely the evidence there are more women involved in green politics than men. And if you look at the green parties across Europe, the majority of most majority positions and senior leadership positions in those organizations are women. So there is there is definitely a, a, a sort of difference in terms of politics. Um, interestingly, apparently the US, there are no green politicians whatsoever in the US. I know, none at all. <laughs> Um, so maybe they didn't realize they can have them. Maybe we need to point that out. You could have some green politicians if you wanted. Uh, so I think, I think that's fascinating. Um, from the point of view of the original uh, whistleblowers on climate change, there were a lot of men, actually. There was, but they were scientists. And I, I think therein is another problem in that we, we haven't communicated science well enough for years. Um, and particularly... Uh, our education system, and we tend to get people to specialize too early so that you have a bunch of people who've done arts and a bunch of people who've done sciences, but the artists don't understand science and the scientists don't know how to communicate to the artists. Do you think the green movement has been effective enough, full stop, really? So I think there's some parts of it now that are becoming infinitely more effective. So, I mean, the the original green movement, so sort of Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, WWF, I think they brought the the matters to a head um, and they gave some political space for politicians to move forwards. I think we're using more tools now. I mean, I think they got there was a slight period of being a little bit lost um, and not really knowing who they were, and what defined them. Um, but we're seeing organisations like Client Earth who are fantastic. So they will actually go uh, and sue people, sue governments, sue departments um, over either sort of stepping over the line or human rights or looking at where they can shut down different parts of a process, say the planning for a new gas power power station in the UK, they get involved and they've got the capital and the capability of doing that. Um, Whereas the campaign groups, I mean, Insulate, what's it called? Insulate Britain. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, we should insulate Britain. That is so true. Their message is spot on. I'm not sure I go and glue myself to the N25 personally. It's not my style. If you've got the public sentiment on board, politicians can actually then legislate. They can make things happen. And and corporates can also make things happen because they want to do that for their customers, for their employees, um, for for their shareholders now. So uh, the whole um, ESG movement, so we're seeing... Uh, pensions under the spotlight. So where are we putting our money and where's that money being invested? So you, so so that is why consumers are so important, not for just what they do, but for, 
for what they represent in terms of political will, in terms of being an employee in a company that does good or doesn't do good, or or where they put their money. And I think that's that's the piece that we slightly forget. I, I always remember seeing, I, I went to a conference in Oxford years ago on this, and, and somebody asked us all in the room to go and stand in the corner where they, they put, they had politicians, people, industrialists, and scientists. And they said, go and stand in the, the corner where you think is most important to get something done on climate change. And what was fascinating about it is everybody went and stood in somebody else's corner. Uh, and, and my view is that it is all massively interconnected and you can't do one without the other. You, you don't have any heroes in this particular problem. We all have to be heroes working together. I, I, one of my frustrations is that the, the, the media tends to latch on, I mean, understandably, to inconsistencies and hypocrisies. So when you have like high profile personalities, which I don't need to name, advocating environmental awareness and then flying around in their private jets to, to actually make that message, mm-hmm. the public go, well, look, you know, look at them. They're flying around in their private jet. And so then that, I think, dissuades the individual to take personal responsibility for improving their environment around them. And I, I completely agree with you. It has to be collegiate. We have to have a, a complete rising of the collective consciousness when it comes to climate change. Yeah. And, and that's why I guess I say we don't, we, having too many heroes doesn't really work because they're, they're then scarce and then have to fly over the planet to fix everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so I do, I see that hypocrisy. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be necessary for if, if we are going to make these changes until we have a system that is lower carbon, there still will be necessity to get on a plane from time to time, but we just don't have to do it all the time. And I think that's one of the, presence from um, one of the gifts from from COVID has been, we know we can do it now. We don't all have to get out there, go get on a plane, go and see somebody face to face to make get things done. And that is very exciting. It's very interesting though, because I think the poor old plane gets a lot of bad press and, and, uh, <laughs> and the farmers and their cows seem to have got off a little bit scot-free because not only do the cows take up an awful lot of water, which we talked about earlier, yeah. but you've also got the methane gas from the cows, which are hugely pollutant. And I, I think I read recently that if if everybody was vegetarian for one day a week, that would make a huge difference to yes. the planet. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely, I mean, if we look at the four things that we can do as individuals, the first thing is how do I power my home? Where does, where does my light, where does my power come from? Um, so whether that's a green electricity supplier like good, or whether you generate your own power from a solar panel on your roof, that that's important. The, the next piece is how do I heat my home? And that for me, that's all about making sure we don't just lose it straight out the windows or through the drafts under our doors or through the roof in our house. Insulate is super important. And then, um, well, in the future, we're going to be, it's going to be mainly electricity from a heating point of view. Then is how do I get everywhere? So where am I going? So as we just talked about, am I just leaping on a plane every 10 seconds or can I do it without getting on a plane? Can I go by train? Can I go by public transport? Do I do I have an electric? Can I vehicle? cycle? Yeah. Yes, cycling exactly. And then the last one, and and really important one, is what do I eat? Um, and I think changing diet is going to be a key part of dealing with this climate crisis. And it's going to be about being more mindful about where our food comes from, 
So how far does it come? Uh, what it is? So is it meat? Is it vegetarian? Um, and actually, there is an opportunity for us to be healthier during that process as well, because what we all know is that if we eat too much meat, if we eat too much um, animal-based fats, that as we get older, it's really not very good for us. So I think that there's a whole kind of re-education we need around food. And then there is that whole piece about what are we doing from an agricultural point of view to reduce the impact. And that's not just about cows. It's just about how the whole system works and how we remunerate people for looking after the land. Has there ever come a moment, Juliet, when you thought, my goodness, this is such a huge change we need to bring about? I don't know if I can keep going. It's about like it's like it's almost like saying, you know, do you know, guys, the world isn't flat; it's round. <laughs> and then we go, no, 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 it's flat. It's absolutely flat. And and then and there's this total resistance. And then you know, we've we've seen it over for decades. Yeah. Has there ever been a moment when you thought, actually, you know what, I, I just give up? Or you know, in a in a way, I'm trying to ask you, what's kept you going? So I think. There are various things that have kept me going. One, I'm an active optimist, so that keeps me going. And I get excited by finding new methods or new thinking or new technologies of how to solve things or new systems. Um, two, uh, there are various things in my life that I, so I love horses. They are my go-to place um, and they give me uh, a balance, I guess. And so just taking exercise, walking, running, anything, swimming, um, all those things keep me kind of happy and joyful. Dancing, definitely. Um, And I think you have to keep those balances because if you spend your whole time in your brain and also don't try and be a hero, don't try and take it all on. This is about all of us doing something. So let's play all of our roles. Um, and be part of a movement. And yeah, just keep picking ourselves up and just moving forwards. Now, you stepped away from uh, Good Energy earlier this year. You remain a director on the Good Energy Group board. But I want to ask you, why did you do that? Why now? And, yeah. and, and what's next for you? So I think actually what's wise now is I probably, I mean, looking back on that, I might, I might well have left earlier, to be honest. Because I think that my knowledge and understanding and what I've learned over the last 20 years of being a CEO on a list of business, dealing in the financial markets, dealing in the energy markets, uh, dealing with people, um, I think could be valuable to a lot of other organizations. And so I now get the opportunity to work with multiple organizations and help influence the way they operate Um, so I'm looking at working with a heat company, with a storage company, with a financial organization. Um, so I kind of hope I can spread the love a little bit wider is the answer. Juliet, you mentioned um, earlier that you used to hang around with a lot of um, men in oily boiler suits. <laughs> but I'm also interested to know about your female influence. What about your your mother and your your grandmothers? Yeah, so so um, when I my my early stage of growing up, I was surrounded by a group of very strident women. I would say not strident, but just out there. So. Um, 
I had my grandmother was sort of a matriarch who who just got on and did stuff. She um, I mean, she was coming. She was meant to be coming back from the she was she was coming back during the war from Egypt to the UK and decided not to get on this boat. She had all these children. She was they were encouraging it. And she she just decided that this wasn't the right time. She took a decision. She stayed in Alexandria during the war. Um, and in fact, that boat was sunk in the Mediterranean. And she she was just one of these women who kind of went, she knew her mind, she knew what she was doing. And she she had no fear of kind of staying in a foreign country with three young children during the war and getting on with it. Um, and then my mum had a great friend called Zizi, who is this amazing Hungarian woman who escaped out of Hungary in 56, dressed as a boy and came to the UK. And she was just, for me growing up, she was just, she just got on and done stuff. Um, and then one of my mum's other great friends was a rally driver, actually. She was a rallying co-driver called Jenny Birrell. And again, she, she just did stuff. And I think, I think I, I saw these women just being themselves and being who they were and being wonderfully interesting, passionate about what they did, um, and just powerful. So it was, it was, it was a fantastic childhood, actually. That's quite a, quite a lesson because had your grandmother not been authentic to her own instincts and got on that boat, we wouldn't be talking today. No, exactly. Uh, what do you wish your younger self knew that you know now? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think, I think if I look back at the last 20 years, I think, um, so, so when I first came into business, uh, I was very about fixing problems. I love fixing problems. It's one of kind of my favorite things to do and kind of rolling out your sleeves and getting stuck in. Um, and after when you get to a certain size, you can't always do that. And understanding how to lead in a way that was true to myself, but without overpowering other people, I think was probably my trickiest piece. And sort of basically saying to myself, you need to take this really seriously. You need to have to learn how to do this quickly. Because I think that's one of the hardest things when you go from, when you've never had an experience working in another organization, which is not, which is, I mean, I'd work in other small businesses, but not really. Um, so I think that and um, yeah, just, just, do what you believe, actually, because I think there was sometimes I sort of I was slightly more risk averse about some of the decisions I made because because people were pushing back at me. And actually looking back at it, I should have gone, you know what, I think we should put on push on. Uh, so, yeah, those, those are the kind of things. Um, yeah, just make sure you have fun while you're doing it, because that 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 drives you and feeds you and lets you be good at what you do. What would you like to say to the younger women coming through the business world who are thinking of taking on big challenges like yourself? So I think the first thing I say to them is make sure what you're going to do, you utterly believe in because it's tough. It's really hard work. And uh, particularly if you're starting something from scratch, uh, you need to live and breathe it for a period of time, literally day in, day out. So you absolutely have to be convinced that this is what you, you believe in. Um, and that comes across in everything you do then. It comes across in how you speak about something. People are convinced, makes it easier to raise money, makes it easier to run your business, get employees and sell your product. Um, so all of those things are really important. Uh, and, and, and I think that goes not just for entrepreneurs, but anybody, if you want to make change, you have to believe in it. 
um, and you have to believe in yourself. So I think that's the first thing I normally talk to people about. And then the next thing I talk to people about is work out what you're not very good at, because then surround yourself with people who are much better at those things than you are. Um, and that, that again is really important. So you can see some people who've got these wonderful ideas, but got no idea how to do a PL account or to do a balance sheet and, and then make sure you've what got is a great, a, what is a, what is a PL account? Uh, a prof, profit and loss. Oh, okay. Sorry. Profit and loss or, or a balance sheet. And, and you just need somebody next to you who is really good at that. So then you can work as a great team. Um, so it's spot, spot your weaknesses as well as knowing your strengths. Um, and then, yeah, just uh, get out there and do it. And, and don't hold back. Why should you? Juliet Davenport, I can definitely say that you have been there and done that. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Susan. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to Being There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well. So please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?